I want to invite you to join me in your copy of God's Word in Luke's, I'm sorry, we'll get to Luke eventually, Genesis chapter 3. We're starting at the other end. Genesis chapter 3. This week we're beginning the Advent, our Advent study coming into the Christmas holiday as we reflect on the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to talk to you this morning about the need for Christmas. I think most of us, at least to some degree, enjoy Christmas, but there have to be moments when we're caught up in the frantic and the busyness and the last-minute gifts and squeezing in one more Christmas party or family gathering, and we're feeling that stress And we think, what in the world are we doing any of this for? This is crazy. We're going out of our minds here. Well, it could be true. There's probably a lot of the extras that we need to cut out. Chances are we we could remove a little bit, remove some of the, the frenzy. But the reality is, is that we need Christmas. Christmas is really that big of a deal, not just because of the commercial, uh, the commercialized aspects of it. In fact, in spite of it, it's still a big deal because, well, we need Christmas. And Genesis chapter 3 reminds us why. If you're familiar with the gospel, if you're familiar with The story of Scripture, Genesis 3, will be familiar to you, but we can't be, we can't rehearse this scene enough. Because the better we understand Genesis 3, the more beautiful Christmas becomes, the more beautiful the gospel is to us. Genesis 3 is a heartbreaking, slow motion train wreck that forever changed the course of humanity. But it's against this backdrop that Christmas becomes all that much more glorious. I'd like to read the whole chapter to you this morning, and I'd I'd love for you to follow along in your copy of God's Word, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man And his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid 
from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. The Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you've listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from the skins, from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out and take from the tree of life and eat forever. So the Lord God sent him away. Sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. These painful and horrific words bring to us the account of how sin came into God's perfect and beautiful creation. If we don't understand what's taking place here, we will never fully grasp the glory of Christmas. You see, it's this passage and the ensuing story that unfolds throughout the Old Testament that reminds us just how much We need Christmas. As I read these verses, I wrote down a few reasons why we need Christmas. This isn't exhaustive by any means, but there were a few that stood out to me. And the first one I wrote down is to heal our shame. We need Christmas in order to heal our shame. We didn't read chapter 2. We could have to give a little bit more context as we read about the creation of man and woman. It's very interesting how chapter 2 finishes as he brings Adam and Eve together he says in verse 24 this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh notice the last verse of the chapter both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame I think it's interesting that the Bible could have said Anything that, I mean, 
Scripture could have said anything it wanted about, God could have said anything he wanted about what Adam and Eve were feeling, what their emotional life was like at this time. But he points out that they were naked and they felt no shame. He could have sent they were, they were joyful and excited about all the new things that they were seeing. He could have said they were filled with wonder. But he talks about them being without shame. See, I think he brings that up because of what's taking place in chapter 3. And the first feeling that creeps into their hearts and lives and their minds, their emotions, is the feeling of shame. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized that they were naked. And when God came to pursue them, verse 10, Adam's response is, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. All of a sudden now, they experienced shame. For the first time, In their lives, this emotional state of shamefulness creeped in. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Adam and Eve were experiencing both here. Guilt can be a very good thing because guilt is a conviction of genuine wrongdoing. And that's what Adam and Eve experienced here. They were feeling guilty as well. Guilt can be a good thing because if, if, if we're genuinely convicted about genuinely doing something wrong, guilt should lead us back to God. We should feel that conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit, and we should want to be quick to repent and turn back to Jesus. But shame is different. One modern writer says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Isn't that interesting? You see, shame goes beyond, I've done something wrong. That's guilt. Shame says, you didn't just do something bad, you are bad. Shame says, there's something wrong with you. You see, Adam and Eve were experiencing guilt, but they also were experiencing this shamefulness that was causing them to turn away from God, to run and to hide. In fact, that's really what shame is all about. Shame is about isolation. Notice that was Adam and Eve's first response. Verse 7 of chapter 3, the eyes of both of them were opened. And what did they do? They knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Immediately, shame makes us want to hide In fact, when God's presence came into the garden and was looking for them, they further, beyond just the fig leaves they'd made, they went and actually physically hid from God, as if such a thing were possible. But they were so filled with, we are awful. We are unworthy of being able to have a conversation with God that that shame made them run. Shame not only inclines our hearts to cover our sin, but Shame does move us to hide from God. It's really interesting that even even before they they took the bite of the fruit, there was something going on, even in Eve's conversation with the serpent. Eve, where previously she had been able to talk with God, she started talking about God. There was not this uh, 
conversation with God about what she was struggling with or what she was wrestling with is that distance, as as the enemy was tempting her and she was beginning to rationalize and justify it, all of a sudden that distance between her and God began to grow and she she was talking about him rather than living in communion with him. Shame is all about getting us to hide. But what is beautiful here is that God was not going to let them hide in their shame. The triune God is a God who pursues. The triune God is a God who is constantly moving toward relationship. I love what one writer said when he says here, the, the loving relationship shared between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, Spirit is the ground on which all other models of life and creativity rest. In this relationship of constant self-giving, vulnerable, and joyful love, shame has no oxygen to breathe. The ever-present movement of this three-part shared relationship with one another, working with one another, trusting one another, delighting in one another, provides the basis for why God created the world in vulnerability, then made himself vulnerable in coming to it in Jesus. You hear what's being said there? It's the very nature of God to be in loving, pursuing relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's why the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity matters. Because it provides the foundation for God's pursuit of us. He refused to let Adam and Eve hide in their shame, but longed to draw them out. Yes, punishment and the curse was coming. But God wanted them to know from the outset that he is a God who pursues sinners. You see, when we sin, even as Christians, we, like our parents, Adam and Eve, our first inclination is to run and hide. We know that there's wrong. We feel the guilt, and it begins to lead to shame. We begin to think, not just I've done something wrong, but I am bad, and I'm unworthy of love. The gospel calls us to a holy vulnerability. It's the opposite of hiding. It's the opposite of running from God. See, we need Christmas because we're reminded that this pursuing God sent his only son to pursue those who were hiding in the darkness. I'm not an expert on shame and how it touches our lives. But I do know this, that love is the antidote to shame. Knowing and believing that you are without qualification loved by Almighty God. That there is nothing you could do today to make him say, Ew, I never want to be around you again. There is nothing that you can do today that will so shock him, so repulse him, that he's going to walk away and say, I I have no clue who that person is. But shame will convince you that that's the way God is. Shame will convince you that he doesn't want you anymore, that you're no longer acceptable to him, that you're just too messed up. Just one too many times 
You've forsaken his love. But the God who pursues is a God whose love never runs out. We need Christmas because we're reminded that this God who pursues us in love, who longs for us to rest in his love, this God came down as a baby, took on the ultimate vulnerability. He led the way in showing us how to be vulnerable. Between the cradle and the cross, Jesus modeled what it was like to be willing to be open. The wounds come, the, the mocking, the hurt, the, the betrayal, all of it. He was willing to be vulnerable, open. That's what God calls us to do. We need Christmas because we're reminded that in the midst of sin comes shame. And the antidote for shame is to fall deeply into the love of God and to learn to be vulnerable with Him and with others. Our first parents hid, but we're called to come into the light. The second reason we need Christmas is to undo the curse of sin. In these verses, we won't reread them, but in verses 14 through 19, God leveled curses at first the serpent, then toward Eve, and then toward Adam. But the chief curse here that underscores all of it is death. In fact, back in chapter 2, if you want to look back there in verses 16 and 17, that was the context of why they weren't supposed to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He says, God, God commanded them, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, what happened? Adam and Eve didn't drop dead, but God said death is certain. <laughs> in the, when I was a kid, there's a movie that came out called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And the Grim Reaper in that movie makes a colorful announcement as he's doing a pseudo-rap in the story. And he says, you can be a king or a street sweeper, but sooner or later, you dance with the reaper. Death, like taxes, is unavoidable. In fact, Hebrews 9.27 says, just as it is, is it a, as, is it, <laughs> and just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, the judgment. What happened here is that Adam and Eve died spiritually. No, they didn't drop dead and breathe their last right there in the garden. But they were now spiritually separated from God. And physical death was introduced into the world, even in God's slaying of the animals to make skins to cover them, to cover their nakedness. In death, human death would begin to be entered in, into the world in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, when Cain killed Abel. We need Christmas because we need to be set free from this curse. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. If you've ever been to a funeral, we've all sensed this. 
even if it's just on a surface level. As we stand before that casket, we have this deep sense that this is not right. You don't even have to be a Bible-believing Christian to know deep down in your soul that this is not the way things should be. And you would be right. It's not the way God created this world. But because of this sin, death has come into this world and, and spread its icy tentacles across all of God's creation. Adam and Eve's disobedience did not only mean that we would experience death one day, but it also meant that all of us were born corrupted by sin and by its power. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, fell from their original righteousness, that perfect communion with God, and they became corrupt, every part of their soul and body. In Romans chapter 5, even though it may be confusing as to how this works, Romans chapter 5 makes it clear that because Adam is sort of the root of all mankind, because of his sin, death is passed to all men and all women, and, and we're corrupted in our core, even from birth. We are born wholly inclined to all that is evil. During this life, this corruption of our nature continues to remain, even in those of us who have been born again, who have a new nature. We can all give testimony to this, even if you're a Christian. You know that there's a pull in you to do the things that you don't want to do, the, the things you know you shouldn't do. This evil, it runs deep. It doesn't mean that every person is always as bad as they could possibly be. But it means that that corruption is a part of every single person. I read this story this week that in 1961, Adolf Eichmann was captured and put on trial. It may have been even the, the first televised trial. And those of you who are history buffs, World War II history buffs, will know that Eichmann was the German Nazi SS lieutenant colonel who was the mastermind behind the death camps and the Jewish genocide. He was put on trial, and a man named I'm not going to probably get this right, but uh, Yehiel Denur, who was a death camp survivor, was brought in in order to testify against Eichmann. When he walked into the courtroom that day and he saw Eichmann, he collapsed on the floor, sobbing. He fainted. 22 years later, Mike Wallace, in 1983, was interviewing Yehiel Denur on 60 Minutes. And he replayed the clip of Denur falling apart, weeping. And Mike, Mike Wallace asked him, what went through your mind at that point? In other words, wh why did you collapse? Why such an emotional display? Was it, was it hatred? Were you overwhelmed with hatred for this man who took so many of your countrymen and loved ones? Were you overwhelmed with, with fear in his presence, seeing him once again? Yehiel Denur startled Mike Wallace and really everybody else who's seen the interview by saying, no, 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 no. Here's what overwhelmed me. I came in, I looked at Eichmann, and I realized this is not a demon. 
This is not a superman. This is someone just like me. And if he's capable of doing this, so am I. What Denure was saying is, Eichmann is in all of us. Scripture teaches that, that we are all born in sin. And given the right conditions, the right social setting, we're all capable of horrific acts. You see, we need Christmas because we need a Savior to set us free from this curse. We need a Savior to set us free from the bondage of sin and the penalty of death. We all lament and weep and our hearts break when physical death takes place here on this earth. But my brothers and sisters, that's not the worst of it. Being separated from God because of our sin and to enter into eternity with that separation still in place means that, that we're forever, eternally in hell, away from the presence of God. We need Christmas because we need a Savior to undo the curse of death. And 1 Corinthians 15.22 reminds us of the beautiful truth, for that just as in Adam all die, so that's, that's the painful truth, the second half is the beautiful truth. So also in Christ will all be made alive. You, you see, because of Jesus and his arrival in this earth and what he accomplished upon the cross, he is undoing the curse of death. Yes, we still see the, the residual effects of death here in this world because, well, we still have funerals. But no longer can death touch us eternally. No longer are we held under bondage to sin. For those who have experienced the life of Christ have been renewed by the Spirit of God. We no longer are under the curse of sin. We need Christmas because we need a Savior to set us free from the curse. I love the lines from Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow. No thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We need Christmas to undo the curse. Thirdly, we need Christmas to restore the presence of God. We were created by God to dwell with him in paradise and to enjoy his presence. Can you imagine what it was like to be Adam and Eve? Walking with God in the cool of the garden. We're not told how long or how many times they experienced this, how frequent it was, but they, they didn't seem at all surprised when God came looking for them after their sin and when they hid from him. It wasn't like, who's here? Seriously, we've never seen this. Before. There seems to be a familiarity with the presence of God. And because they were unashamed, because of sin, uh, because there was no sin prior to their rebellion, they, they were free and open. Could you imagine? Can you imagine never having a single inhibition in the presence of God to come freely before him without any reservation, no check, no like, oh, how have I been the last day? No shame, no guilt, nothing. We can't fully fathom that. If you've experienced the saving love of Jesus Christ, you're getting to drink of that and taste of that, but to have no sin whatsoever, perfect un 
unhindered fellowship and communion in the presence of God? Mankind has never experienced this since the fall, and we will not fully again until we're brought into the presence of God. You see, we see the presence of God pursuing man throughout the Old Testament. We see God continually pursuing people with his presence, but there's something different now. God is present in the burning bush or in the thunderclouds of Mount Sinai, but there's a distance. Even as he made provision for the people to come to the tabernacle or later on to the temple, there was still a distance. You had to go through the priest. You and I, as if we were just normal, everyday Jewish people, we couldn't just go walk into the temple or the tabernacle, in before the Ark of the Covenant, into the presence of God and pray anytime we wanted. Not even if there was a lottery. Like, we just, we couldn't, we weren't able to do that. We had to go through a mediator to be able to approach God. God's presence still remained with his people, but yet there was a distance. He was reminding them that there was a, a sin that kept, kept them from enjoying that, that fellowship, that intimate presence that Adam and Eve knew in the garden before sin. Here's why we need Christmas, so that we can come near to God once again, so that we can come and boldly approach his throne. First, or I mean not First John, but John 1.14 reminds us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the first step in God restoring His presence among His people was to, was to come and live with them. The Word became flesh. This is why we worship at Christmas. This is why Christmas is so, or should be so important to Christians. Not because of the extra baked goods or extra presents or even the chance to give presents. It's because, because God became flesh to dwell among us. To be with us. And it didn't just end with Jesus' life and earthly ministry. This is what we have to look forward to in eternity. In Revelation 21.3, John writes, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. But you see, it's not just the bookends of Jesus' coming and birth and his return and gathering of his people into his presence. But you see, God came to bring his presence to us now, even today. That's what Joseph heard from the words of the angel as the angel appeared to him in Matthew 1 to comfort him. Remember, he was, he was afraid and he was anxious and he was ready to, to divorce wife. And the angel came and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through his prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated what? God with us. Our Savior is known as God with us. Present tense. Not God showed up at a party for a while and left, or God will be with us, but God is with us. 
You see, we need Christmas because we need the presence of God. We need to know the intimacy of God. We need to know a God who allows us to draw near. That's, that's why Hebrews is so beautiful when it says we can boldly come into the throne room of God. No priests necessary. No more sacrifices necessary. God is now with us. We are his people and he is our God. My brothers and Savior, my brothers and sisters, we definitely, absolutely need to know that we have a God that's with us. Do you know this morning? Do you believe in your heart of hearts that God is with us? Is Jesus your Emmanuel? Is Jesus your divine comforter? You see, the, the New Testament even goes a step further in, in, in doing away with the temple and the sacrificial system and everything. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians that our bodies are a temple of the Spirit of God. Now, when I was growing up, a lot of times, if I ever heard a sermon about the, your body being a temple, it was usually in the context of, here's things you shouldn't do, you shouldn't, shouldn't do to your temple, like don't get drunk or don't get a tattoo or whatever, because it's God's temple and you've got to treat it well. But that's not the point of what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, God's presence dwells in you. They, they, the temple, it's not needed anymore. There's no, no need for it because the presence of God is not just among us here at church in a general way, but God is dwelling in you. You can speak to God openly and vulnerably because not only is he your friend, not only is he your savior, not only is he your creator, but he, his presence is within you. A mind-boggling concept. But I wonder this morning if that's touched your heart in a deep way. And then finally, we need Christmas to bring us a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, we encounter what theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. It's Latin for first gospel. In the midst of the curses God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then he, he, he switches to a, a, first per, or a, a third person pronoun and he says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He was talking about offspring in a general way and then he made it specific. He will. And according to what God said there, the enemy would get a, a strike on his heel. That is, there would be a blow, it would be a painful blow, but it would not be a deadly blow, a, a, a finishing blow. But the offspring of the woman would strike or crush the serpent's head. It's the cross. The enemy bruised our Savior. The enemy even caused him to die upon the cross. But it was not a final blow, for Jesus rose again three days later. The blow dealt to the enemy, however, by 
Jesus was a deadly one. Matthew one twenty one tells us, she will give birth to a son and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. My brothers and sisters, we need Christmas because we need a savior. Don't let anything else in this Christmas season overshadow the fact that Christmas means God sent Jesus because you and I were sinners heading toward eternity in hell, desperately in need of one who would love us and save us. I've quoted this before, but it's, it's one of my most favorite stories from John Newton's life. John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, as you know, was earlier in his life a slave trader and even captain of a slave ship that would transport captured Africans to the Americas. For medical reasons, he left the seafaring life, became a customs officer, and began studying theology. Eventually, as he got saved, he became a minister. However, even as a minister, Newton never forgot the horrible nature of his sin as a slave trader, the wicked things that he did, that he allowed upon those slave ships. At the end of his life, Newton, in fact, in his final, final hours upon his deathbed, Newton called a friend close. He spoke these words, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. That's the gospel. We need a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. My brothers and sisters, this morning, we need Christmas. No, we really don't need more presents. We certainly don't need more stress, and we probably don't need more baked goods. We do need Christmas because we need a great Savior. And... The world around us needs him too. We have the privilege of being able to celebrate the Lord's table as we come into this Christmas season, as we think this morning about what our Savior accomplished upon the cross to undo the curse of sin in Genesis 3. We, we celebrate that through the bread and the juice representing his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us so that we can Come before God. And one of the things I love about Communion Sunday is that we get to do this together. We, as God's people, come before him and we're collectively saying as we come to the table, I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great savior. And boy, do I need him. The bread and the, the cup, they, they don't save us. They don't seal the deal. That's, that's accomplished through Jesus' finished work and our faith in him. We're, we're, we're saved by faith alone, not through works. But what the table does is it, it, it reminds us in a fresh way of that sacrifice and spiritually draws us near to Jesus in gratitude and holy joy. And then we get to do this as a body, get to do this together 
We're not enjoying this in the isolation of our homes, but we enjoy the table together. As we, in a fresh way, thank God for sending Jesus and for giving us the hope of eternal life. I want us to take a moment and, and pray here just in just a minute. I want to remind you, if, if you've never had communion here with us before, that as we, uh, as, as we finish praying, our worship team will lead us in a final song. And you can just come on up out of your seat, and there's three different stations here, and, and um, use the tongs to grab a piece of bread and a cup, and you can return to your seat. And as much time as you want to spend there, uh, you, if you want to just spend some time praying and thanking God uh, for his, his work and drawing near to him, uh, use that time as a time of worship. Uh, we want you to know that the, the bread here in the, in the center, um, in, the, in the middle plate, uh, is gluten-free if that's of, of help to you. We also have offering plates at each of the tables. Uh, these are over and above the normal offerings that you would give in the offering boxes on the back wall. This is an offering for, uh, for those in our church family that might be experiencing a special time of need. And if you feel led to give that way, we welcome you to do so. Let's take a moment and go before God, the one who has loved us eternally. And I, I came across this, this prayer this week, and I want to share this with you. Uh, encouraged and strengthened my heart, and I pray that it will yours. Lord God, King of the universe, we are thankful. We're thankful for the creation of heaven and earth. We are thankful for the light of the sky, for the stars of the night, the snow of winter, and the light that returns in the spring. Lord God of Israel, we are thankful for the creation of our first parents in the Garden of Eden, for your supporting them when they fail you for the first proclamation of the gospel that evil cannot prevail, for the redemption promised to Abraham and to Sarah, for the hope of a Messiah proclaimed by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and Zechariah, for the gift of the law and the challenge of a holy life. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are thankful that the promise given by the prophets has been kept in Bethlehem. A prince of the house of David has been born who is Christ the Lord. Mary, the new Eve, in deep humility, brought forth the new Adam. Eternal Lord and God, we are thankful that out of obedience to the Father, that out of love for us, Jesus took on himself the curse so long borne by Adam and Eve, and having died under the curse, brought its power to an end. Almighty Father, we are thankful we are thankful that death has not had the last word. We are thankful that the veil of the temple was rent in two. The immovable stone was rolled away. Christ is risen. Gracious God, we are thankful that Christ, having risen from the dead, the head of the serpent has been crushed. The power of Satan has been overcome. And Christ has become the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn of a new creation. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And we are free, free to live the life of the children of God, to exercise the gifts of love and joy and peace, to share our bread and wine with one another. The gates of heaven are open before us, and we are free to enter without fear. Oh God, we bless you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we too have been begotten from on high, Born again of imperishable seed, we are now your children by faith, heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Oh, Jesus.
we thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for the chance to remember that you have come to set us free from sin and death and to give us hope and life eternal. God, as our hearts quiet now before you, draw us near to the heart of Jesus. May we sense your deep love for us. May our eyes be awakened to the hope and joy of the gospel. We thank you, God. We thank you for this time of Christmas. Draw us near to you as we worship through the Lord's table. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come. Men seeking truth traveled from afar, hoping to find a child from heaven. Was falling on their knees, they bowed before the humble Prince of Peace. I bring an offering. Worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. offering to you the sun cannot compare to the glory of your love there is no shadow in your presence no mortal man would dare to stand before it's only by your blood and it's only through your mercy Lord I call I 